Welcome to the House 94 Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining today. Uh, this week, our topic is Second Amendment, the Second Amendment. Uh, if you tuned into some of our previous episodes, we've already covered some amazing content. We had Black Mental Health, we had Civil Rights, uh, two really good topics. But today, we get into uh, the Second Amendment, which is something that's always um, top of mind in our political environment. And uh, it tends to separate left and right. Uh, and, you know, with all the things that are going on lately, you know, we had the militia group that came out in Michigan because they were uh, upset about the shelter in place work from the governor out brandishing AK-47s and, and AR-15s. We had, you know, all kinds of other groups, you know, displaying their weapons. We've had several situations that have happened in the news. And then this, this past weekend, we got a group of brothers that decided to get together, get their AR-15s out and mark on Stone Mountain. So we felt like it was a timely topic, something to put out here and then have a, a, a spirited discussion today. And uh, obviously we're gonna use the, uh, we're gonna lean on uh, the legal scholars in our group to, uh, to kind of set the stage for us. But, um, you know, we're gonna have a general conversation on Second Amendment and uh, see if we can add some uh, some color to the, to the uh, conversation. So, all of that being said, and again, forgive me for the sunglasses, I'm not trying to be on the Hollywood shit, but here in Wakanda, the sun is coming off the lake, so please forgive me. Now, let's jump right in. Lou, kick it off, brother. It's written because of slavery, the way it's written. It was ratified in 1791, and uh, just to give you some history, the Constitution hadn't yet been ratified, and it was down to a handful of states that could ratify it. Virginia being one of them. And the governor of Virginia, Patrick Henry, had concern about the um, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which provided for um, Congress to raise a militia. Um, and he was concerned that Congress may do so and prohibit or try to um, restrain, stop, halt, whatever the South from recovering runaway slaves and um, or putting a stop to slavery as a whole. So in order to um, address his governor's concern and try not to uh, offend the other states that had already, uh, the Northern states, he wrote a simple one sentence um, Amendment and it reads a well ready a, a well regulated militia being necessary to the secretary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So what has happened is that simple one sentence has been dissected basically into two um, two parts or two phrases. The first being a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. And, and the, the second part shall not be infringed. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, as we know in the United States, it doesn't really matter what the individuals think. It always comes down to the Supreme Court rulings. And as we get through the history of it, um, we'll see that the Supreme Court with different courts have ruled differently on the Second Amendment. But also, it's important to, to realize that when James Madison drafted that 
uh, that simple sentence. The intent was that blacks would not be able to bear arms. Uh, they weren't. They didn't. It was have written, or that was implied. Well, that was their intent. It's not in the amendment, but that was his intent. He didn't. Because he, we were three fifths humans, so we weren't. We weren't privy to the the, the laws of the land, basically. And, and then the subjects you, of the land. And when you take it further, um, they put further restrictions based on what he had written. Uh, that the state had the right to to raise a well-regulated militia. Blacks weren't allowed in the militia. Um, otherwise, they'd have been able to bear arms. The only way to join the militia was to be a um, a bugler or um, a drummer. So they. That's all they. That's all they were allowed to do in the militia. But you know, it's funny because, like, I always had a misconception about the Second Amendment because I always believed. Uh, now, of course, I'm not a student of history, you know, because I believe your major was history, right? It was something like that. Yeah, I, I'm not a student of history. I, mean, I know history is a, a a learned individual, but uh, I always thought that they created the Second Amendment so that when it was time to go down and fight the British at the river or at the you know at the border or whatever that every man could go get his musket from under his bed, run down to the border and be ready to fight. That's actually not the case. Uh, oh. They raised an army and they were saying that the federal government could should only be able to raise that army in that instance, but the militias should be maintained in the states for any oppression that went on in the states. Back to what Crump talked about when we had this discussion before, it was really about the state's rights, like, you know, like they argued. You know, it, it, it actually falls into the argument that some of the Second Amendment proponents talk about today. So we got to understand the history, guys, you know, understanding the history of what occurred uh, with, you know, pre, and when I talk about history, pre-revolutionary war, we're talking about the British, you know, they were essentially coming in, staying in people's houses, um, pimping them on uh, taxes, uh, essentially coming in their houses, unreasonable, you know, searching and seizing things that, you know, that they believe uh, may have been uh, outlay for an uprising against them or what have you. And so, you know, the whole revolution starting with the Boston Tea Party, you know, was kind of this, hey, we don't, we're not trying to get taxed by these, uh, these folks, you know, you sit here pimping us all the time. We're trying to rebel. And so the collective, the collective, fuck all that. Right. And exactly. And so they essentially was like, you know, hey, you know, they had their own little Black Lives Matter protests in that regard, and they were saying, we're just not having it anymore. And so once the Revolutionary War concluded, you had a situation where the colonists uh, or those who were colonized, those, you know, before the states had become, you know, those first 10, 13 original states, they basically decided, hey, we got to make sure that doesn't happen again. You know what I'm saying? We got to make sure that, you know, that there is no sense that the federal government or the government can come over and impose their will upon us. And so in order to do that, we have to, you know, provide uh, some type of ability for our people to, you know, keep necessary arms to prevent or to, to ensure that, uh, you know, they are protected and that, you know, those folks can't, one, just come in their house, those red coats can't come and impose their will. And so, you know, so we got to look at it from that perspective, um, you know, is really we're, they were trying to prevent imposition of this outside force from coming in. And so 
one of the things they did with James Madison, he was like, look, you know, um, you know, there was this, I guess there was actually this, this, um, it's kind of like this ideology. You had the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. And essentially the Federalists believe that there should be government intervention. Um, you don't need to have people, uh, you, you, you know, we, we can have a standing army. We don't have to worry about it or what have you. And then the Anti-Federalists was like, nah, you know, we can't have that. And so uh, essentially um, it got to a point where, you know, James Madison was able to prevail, prevail ability with the other states. I guess he got the other states to be able to ratify um, and impose those uh, first Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. He basically was able to put that out there in that second amendment. And so that the issue now becomes, you know, you fast forward it, is whether or not there is an, an individual right uh, to bear arms versus a collective right to raise a militia for the purpose of bearing arms, um, to essentially repel any invading force, to ensure that there's no insurrection uh, within the government or within you know the people. Uh, and when I say insurrection, I think we all know what that means. And um, you know, and so essentially, that's where we are today. And so um, you've got these two sides kind of battling out as to what you know, those two parts of the Second Amendment are, and those two parts being, you know, uh, the right to bear arms and the other part being that, you know, the state should pass no law that shall infringe upon that right. And so, you know, to this day, you got these two issues. And so it really comes down to a matter of interpretation. How are you going to decide which one is which? And of course, the progressives, has taken the side that it's all about, you know, raising uh, the right to bear arms is directly related to, you know, raising and funding a militia or, you know, in this case, um, whether it be, you know, the ability to, I, I can't really say National Guard, but the ability to be a soldier or to help repel an invading force as it related to back in the day to where the Republicans are pretty much saying, no, it's an individual right and it basically goes to the individual's own right to bear arms for whatever purpose, um, you know, as long as that purpose is, purpose is lawful. Yeah, I read something about that today, actually, kind of doing a prep for the show. And, you know, like you were saying, one school of thought is that state regulated militia is actually supposed to be the National Guard. And you don't really need to have people, you know, with their own firearms. And the other side of the argument is, nah, dude on a rocket launcher under my bed. I can have a rocket launcher under my bed because I go need to hunt and cull the numbers of the deer out there in the wilderness. You can, whatever you want to do, scorch the earth, whatever, it should be all good because you got the right to bear arms. Um, okay. So if you think about the, the, the foundation that you guys just covered, right? And that takes us back to, you know, the time when this was all written, ratified all and all of that. You go through like this, this civil rights era and then and that was mostly hand-to-hand -hand com combat, fire hoses and dogs and all of that. But then you get to the 70s, you got the war on crime, you get to the 80s and the war on drugs, and now you've got this pervasive gun culture, both on the criminal side and on, you know, out every other side, right? Uh, and now with the gun manufacturers and everybody else, it's like guns everywhere. Take a little bit further to the uh, assassination of Reagan, you got the Brady Bill that came about, about, you know, infringing on uh, the gun rights and that kind of thing. So 
Can y'all talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court has gotten into this and like some of the legalities uh, and, and how some of those things have helped, helped to frame this argument? Well, just to go off, the last Supreme Court decision occurred back in 2008. And it was actually a local. It was Heller? Huh? Yeah, it was the Heller was decision. Heller? Yeah. yeah. It was uh, the District of Columbia v. Heller that occurred in, the, in uh, 2008. And, um, and, it, and it still goes back to everything we just discussed, James Madison, it, uh, you know, arguments, um, all that. And essentially, just to give you a foundation of what that case was about, it was essentially a special police officer in D.C. who wanted to be able to get a handgun, uh, purchase a handgun for uh, personal use and bring it back to his house um, for home defense or whatever. Well, D.C. has always had a ban on handguns. Um, and essentially, um, not only do they have a ban, if you had one prior to the, to the fact prior to the point where they initiated the ban, it had to be uh, locked up. Um, or not necessarily locked up, but it had to be in your house. It couldn't be loaded or it had to have uh, what you call one of those um, lock and keys so that it couldn't necessarily be used. The lock and key had to be on the trigger. Um, but what's the point? And exactly. And then not only that, you had to, you know, the, the District of Columbia government was basically issuing out a license, uh, one year licenses. You know, and so if you had that handgun, you have to essentially apply for this license every one year to essentially be lawful, you know, to be to own it legally. And so um, and then there was another issue, I uh, believe, where it was uh, the, the it was illegal to to have a registered handgun. So so basically a libertarian lawyer came about and filed a lawsuit and it ended up getting dismissed initially. But then on appeal. They basically took it all the way up from the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court and basically uh, was able to get that that handgun ban overturned, whereby, you know, because the court was basically Justice Scalia in his in his opinion, basically was like, you know, essentially the right to bear arms is an individual right. And essentially you're putting so much, you know, uh, you're essentially having this guy go through so much in order to own a weapon that it, it is tantamount to, you know, uh, you know, abridging his freedom and is an unconstitutional uh, in the way it's unconstitutional in the way in which DC government is doing it. And so, uh, but the dissent, um, which came from Justice C Stevens, basically was like, yo, it comes down to, you know, it, you know, although we understand that, but if we look at the Constitution, the Constitution goes back to what is it, you know, that, you know, it, the main argument was, you know, it, it's a collective. You have to be able to collectively, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, it's not an individual right, it's a collective right. To go back to your argument is that, you know, with all the things that have occurred in 70s, 80s, the war on crime or whatever, essentially the way the Supreme Court looks at it is, all that is said and done, all that is fine, all the war on crime, um, you know, when you have all these killings or what have you, regardless of what has occurred, their belief is that, hey, there are things that the states can do to regulate it, you know? However, they cannot totally ban the usage of these weapons because that is a total banishment or a total abolition or a total wipeout of the Second Amendment. 
And so they're basically saying, basically, I don't care. I don't care about all this stuff that is happening, whether it be crime. I don't care about, you know, all these crazy shootings that are going on all over the country with people wiping out kids or whatever. At the end of the day, our Second Amendment is what it is. And that that's really raises the point. My last point in this is, is that, you know, the Second Amendment and the Constitution uh, does lean itself to be amended um, through ratification. Um, and the way the Second Amendment is right now is it's just totally out of date. Because when you got two people, two different allergies can, that can give, you know, substantive good interpretation of one, you know, sentence, then we've got a problem. Because the only thing that matters is, you know, what the makeup of the Supreme Court is to determine which way the gun laws are going to go. So if you... Yeah, believe, that's, that's madness. That's madness. And yeah. like, Chicago had a similar case. I think it was uh, Chicago versus McDonald or McDonald versus Chicago, where the, the black man in the South suburbs wanted to... He, he was saying it's so crime is so bad, law-abiding citizens should be able to have a gun. Because Chicago had similar gun laws to DC, where it was absolutely not allowed to have a firearm at all. And uh, the Supreme Court ruled with him, which is funny because now it seems they have no support for Black people owning guns and owning firearms. Like, well, let's talk about a little bit of, about how, um, even though the NRA is huge and they're proponents of, of bearing arms and all of that, until it comes to us. In preparing for this, man, I was reading about, you know, I'm, I'm all about a black, the Black Panther Party. So what happened, I was reading in 1967, we all know the NRA is all about, you're taking my guns, you're taking my guns, you know. But when Huey, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and 28 other guys, they rolled up on Ronald Reagan at the, uh, at the Capitol building in Sacramento. They changed the laws immediately, and the NRA was behind it. Look it up, the Mulford Act. I was reading about that today. Yeah. They, they, that's why California has some of the toughest gun laws now. You, yeah. you don't see some gun laws in that. You said have some black people getting some guns out. Yeah, yeah. What's, exactly. what's interesting that about that? To my next point, they don't, they don't, you know, they all about them having guns, but once they see us with guns, it's a problem. So they passed that law. I think it happened in like April. They signed it into into law in like July. It's called the Morford Act, man. Check and what out. what year was that? You remember? Nineteen sixty-seven. Nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is, and, and we talked about this before, is that the NRA has been around for a while. Before it got in, in the politics and was one of the largest, became one of the largest lobbying uh, organizations in the world. Basically, they were simply just a uh, you know, marksman type organization. They were, you know, they were open to African American safety and all that. They were all about gun safety, all about competitions, all about, you know, just general marksmanship and how to be a, 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 you know, a competing gun owner and a safe gun owner or whatever. It wasn't probably until the 60s and the riots and all that stuff that Dirty whole, Harry. Don't forget Dirty Harry. Yeah. Well, no, that's right. That came around in the 70s and 80s. But it's interesting. I was going to take it that I was going to take it back to the '80s. But now that what what McLeod was saying about you know how they changed their tune uh, in 1967, uh, you know, essentially, I have reason to believe that has probably a lot to do with that time period and the fact that you said before, once Black folks started saying, "Hey, you know, enough is enough," and we're going to start bearing arms too, 
then their whole position changed. And, uh, you know, part of that came into fruition with the, uh, with all those Dirty Harry and Charles, was it Charles Bronson movie? Charles Bronson. You know, Death Wish. Yeah, where we're going to eliminate the thugs. We're going to kill all these people in these poor uh, black and his black and brown communities in, in New York, the Bronx and all that. And that's when their, their whole political ideology just kind of reframed itself, though. You know? And I guess with all the money being generated by that lobbying organization, NRA was making money hand over fist. The Republican Party started getting paid by it. And I think they just started feeding each other. And they kind of took the whole gun owner out of it. I don't even think the NRA is about the membership anymore. It's really about the, the gun manufacturers and lobbying and just that money wheel just kind of cycling through Washington. Yeah, I think so, too. That's a good point. I think what, the majority so you, of it is What do you guys about, think about the militia that, that rolled up on Stone Mountain this weekend? What y'all think about that? I think they'd be safer in Chicago than in Georgia. But, you know, I mean, down there, they got a lot of good old boys that can come out from mud and rocks. And they got guns everywhere. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But the population in Georgia may not support that. They might get stuffed out. But, I mean, hey, I like that show of force. I like how they were saying, you know what, we got guns too. I think that's important. Um, it's just we, we just need to make sure that we, we send in the right messages and we actually doing something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to see them do some follow-through. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Show up at the polling places and make sure that, that people get to vote and don't get intimidated and that kind of thing. The same kind of stuff that they do to us, you know? Right. Can't bring a firearm to a polling place. You can sell them on the street. You just can't. I think it's a distance. It's like yeah, a, it's a distance. Uh, yeah, it's a distance as far as how, yeah. how far you yeah, got. They bring them to the state capitol. Yeah. Let's, let's frame the question instead of saying, what do we think about it in that regard? What do we actually think about it today? Like, what do you think it should be? How do, you, how do we feel about it individually? You're saying we already covered the militia versus the, the individual right. What do each of y'all think? You know what I'm saying? Quasi, what you got? Kudos for the history because I think when everyone, or generally speaking here, Second Amendment, we just think the right to bear arms and don't necessarily understand the history behind it all. And, and how we arrive at today. When I hear it in this simplistic view, I think we all have a responsibility as Americans and probably more importantly as African-Americans today, given the climate and what's going on, to uh, bear, bear arms. I think we all need to have uh, protection in our home and need to uh, equip ourselves, train ourselves to protect uh, our home and our family. So. For me, and again, in the very simplistic uh, form of it all, the definition of the Second Amendment, I'm very much for what it means and our right to bear arms and protect. I do agree, because I've always had a gun. Always had a gun. And it's always been about protection. It ain't been about robbing nobody. Yeah. It's, it's just basically been protection. And when we talk about, but then you flip side, what about those people that didn't, that don't have guns, that just think guns is dangerous or don't even want to even attempt to go be around, you know? Well, I think that's the beauty of the Second Amendment, though. I mean, and, and, and the beauty of America, when you look at it from an idealistic standpoint, I mean, we as Americans have the right to choose, you know? You don't, look, I had a conversation with my, with my oldest son about it and he's not in favor of guns at all. And I, and I respect it. I'm like, look, you 19 years old, you had an innocence of the world that you're looking through. Those are the lens that you're seeing life through right now. I'm 47 going on 48. I've experienced things and seen things that are different and that have me in the mindset now that's like, look, 
I'm too damn old to be fighting somebody if, if, if I have to protect and defend myself. The, the days of dancing around and knocking a dude out ain't happening no more. No. But if you come up in my crib <laughs> unannounced, right? <laughs> yeah. Then uh, you know, with my Sign right for the hole in the trap. Um, I plan to let a let a fool know. I mean, that's well, yeah. Your son being nineteen, you know, what I'm saying he can still scrap. Like like you said, I'm forty eight, got bad yeah. knees, and my former my linebacker days are thirty five years ago. So exactly. On me now, it ain't gonna be no squaring up. That's what I'm trying to right now. Let me right? ask y'all this. Put a hole in somebody. Let me ask you this though, uh, because we talk about that, and obviously, I think everybody everybody on is on the same page as far as home defense, right? You know, as far as as being able to protect your family and all that. I think the issue becomes your right to go out and carry your weapon. Yes. You know? How you, you know, what is your feelings about that? Uh, you know what? I'll tell you, I got, I'll tell you about that real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I live in a high rise, right? And since I moved from, uh, from Atlanta to Wakanda, uh, well, it wasn't Wakanda at first. I moved from Atlanta to Chicago. I was living downtown in a high rise. Then I moved to Wakanda, Hyde Park on the lake. So in a high rise, you don't have as many crime issues because unless it's Spider-Man, they're not coming to my crib, right? We got all kind of security downstairs, locked doors, all that kind of stuff. However, you know, there was a little bit of a crime spree lately. And I was like, man, you know, I think me and the wife need to go and get a concealed carry. The economy like it is and people going crazy and just, you know, in, in, in need of things and, and willing to do anything to feed their family. They might, you know, try to take their shortcut. And you you want to be the one, one, wrong one they run up on. So I yeah. think it's important to get that concealed carry into uh, in this day and age. I mean. I always felt like, you know, Second Amendment, it was bullshit. But considering where we are now, if everybody has a gun, you almost got to get a gun to be on, on the same page and be on par with everybody else. All right, yeah, cool, I mean, okay. You a, uh, you, a gun, you a gun toter or you a police caller? You, you trying to be strapped or you, or you what? What's up? <laughs> uh, I'm actually both, man. I believe you got to have both. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, uh, especially, you know, you know, this was a good topic. And, and as I started kind of doing the research, looking back, like the NRA, like we said before, were, was uh, strong about, you know, gun rights until Black Panther came along. And, and especially in light of what's going on right now with the economy, we see a lot of tensions in the air. It's just better to be prepared, safe than sorry. So I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. a big proponent of, uh, you, you know, you, you got to stay strapped. Now, all that means, JT, did you, yeah, JT, what's your take? I mean, I know you're living off in, uh, where are you, uh, Schenectady? Uh, money earning Mount Vernon. <laughs> come down, come down, exactly. So the gun laws in, in New York are, you know, just as tough as they are in California for the most part, particularly around handguns. But in Westchester, you can have a shotgun or a rifle. That's acceptable. And then if you, if you have a urgent need where either you have a cash business or something that says that your life is being um, in, a, in a jeopardy situation, then you can get a handgun permit. But that those are hard to come by. Right. My thing is that you got, you, you got to make sure that people are aware of, of the laws. You, you got to focus on gun safety. You, you got to make sure the restrictions around people that have mental issues, people that have been accused or convicted of domestic abuse. I feel you, but you know, the funny thing, and this is where this, this is a perfect lead into the next part of the conversation. You talk about gun rights and, and, you know, having your own concealed carry or having a weapon in your house for protection. That leads us into the discussion about some of the ways that this has gone wrong for black people, right? 
So you think about Philando Castile, for example, up in Minnesota. He was a legal gun owner. He had a concealed carry permit. He got pulled over. He informed the police officers that he had a weapon. And they said, they panicked and were like, let me see your hands. Instead of him putting his hands up, he said, no, I got a permit. Let me show you. Let me see your hands. A man reached for his permit. They shot him and killed him on the spot. And then the other crazy one that happened is uh, the, the girl in Louisville. Is, is it Breonna Taylor? Yeah. I want to make sure I get her name right. They, they come and do a no-knock warrant in Louisville. I mean, this ain't Compton in the, in the 80s, you know what I'm saying? Louisville for a no-knock warrant. And basically, in, a, in Kentucky now, where they got, like, Castle Doctor and all kind of stuff in place, and they, they barge these people's houses unannounced in a place where people can be armed. They shoot at the police. They shoot back and kill the girl. And it's like, kill the lady. And it's like, ah. So to me, that's an outrage. That's the kind of thing that, that the NRA and everybody else ought to be up in arms about. But for us, it's kind of like they leave us hanging. Well, I think that, that leads to a good point because you got to understand that these laws are not written for us.